All right, my message today is a continuation of uh, a series of messages that I've been giving for some time now. The main title is The Art of Making Disciples. This is part seven, and it's not only part seven of The Art of Making Disciples, but it's part two of the sub-series, The Word, and Ministering the Word of God. We were blessed to have, um, just as an aside, we were blessed to have uh, uh, Rifka Witten and her husband George here to minister to us this last weekend. Wow, who was there? Wasn't that a great time? Wow, that was a great time. My goodness. Wow. The music was great. George's message was right on. You know, this is a time in which the people of God need encouragement. There's an awful lot that has been happening that seems quite discouraging. In fact, I had been sick for the last uh, probably three months, just not feeling well the last two months were really bad. All of a sudden, yesterday though, I woke up and I thought, wow, I feel pretty darn good. By yesterday afternoon, I was actually able to go out in the yard and work several hours in the hot sun in the yard, and I thought, yeah, this really feels good now. So do not be discouraged. Be encouraged. Because it's like Philip says, ultimately the kingdom is not defined by this mask, nor is the kingdom ultimately limited by this mask. That would be silly. It's not. The kingdom is about Yeshua. The kingdom is about Yeshua crucified and risen from the dead. The kingdom is about taking the kingdom of God to all of the earth. That's what the kingdom's about. The kingdom is not limited, whatever other limitations governments may temporarily put upon us. And this too shall pass. Speaking of encouragement, I wanted to invite our sister forward. She told me a word that she felt like the Lord had given her just that day. She was in service last week also. And I, when I heard what this word was, I asked her uh, last weekend, right after the concert, if she would be willing to give this word to everyone here in the congregation today. And so please... Right here. You bet. As we were here last week listening and just um, entering in, and it was our, my husband was with me, one of my very good friends that's usually overseas um, in the morning, and then in the evening I came back and brought my friend who's usually overseas, and another friend who actually does some ministry leadership with me, and um, early in the morning, though, on Saturday, as I was here and I was watching everybody and I was looking around and not knowing who's regularly present and who is new um, who are, or who just might be visiting, um, the Lord began to speak about this congregation. He began to speak about this community, and he began to speak about the state of Kansas, and he was very specific, and he said, Rochelle, 
the overflowing that I'm talking about is this congregation. He said, I'm going to do a work in the people here. No longer will he ask you to give out of your substance, out of what you have and where you are, and for the little that you are struggling in. He said, I'm going to overflow you, and you will begin to give out of the abundance and the overflow of what you have. And as I prayed over that through the week for all of you, I was reminded of a word that actually came out in March of this year, and it actually has to do um, with a mighty body of water, actually not very far from here, it's about five hours away if you all are familiar with Beaver Lake. Um, and the example that was given there, and I wanted to share this with you because this is really important to the kind of work God really does. Um, Beaver Lake is a three-level storage lake. I don't know if any of you know that, it's three parts. And so it's the, in, the inactive pool, which is the bottom portion of it. The second level is the conservation pool. It's, it's what keeps all of the area all around that lake um, flowing and, and well-preserved. And then the top portion is the flood control pool. So when it begins to overflow, what happens in those, if, if all of you are not really aware, when the levee is, too, or when the dam is too full, they lift the levee and begin to release the flood waters onto all of the land that is below. And the Lord is saying, when the waters begin to pour out on you, do not panic that you will be overflowed for more than you can stand. It will not overflow you to a place that you will drown. He promises that he will make a way for you and that is the place that you will give out of that substance. So don't panic when it begins to come. Welcome it and press further into him and he will help you to adjust and know what to do in it. Thank you, Rochelle. She said, she said the scripture that God had given her for that is Isaiah 43, 2. I want to say something about this. Um, Annette and I have been here for five years now. Many of you are the core who has been with us during that time. You know that there have been some real struggles in the last five years, right? Just like there were struggles before that. That day, just earlier that day, and this is before Rochelle uh, approached me that evening, Annette and I went out to lunch with George and bought repent. And they were asking us about remnant of Israel and uh, how things had been and such as that. And then all of a sudden, George said, I feel like God is giving me a word for you. And that word is very much the word that he gave to Joshua. And that word is, don't be afraid, be bold. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be encouraged, not discouraged, he said. And then just a little while later, as we were continuing talking over lunch, Batrifka began with that subject also. Be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Now, that was twice within the course of less than an hour that I heard this message from two different people. 
And then I come here that night, and Rochelle approaches me after the concert's over with, and she gives me a very similar word. The word that she gave, though, was that no longer are we going to be giving out of the little bit that we have, but we'll be giving out of the overflow that God has poured into us. God is intending to do something with this congregation. And every one of us are part of that. Every one of us. Now, I will tell you that when those three messages came to me, all in the course of one day, all very encouraging messages, God already knew about this mask mandate that was going to be put in place, right? Do you think he was surprised by this at all? Do you think it means anything to him at all? No, it doesn't. And it shouldn't bother us either, and it shouldn't upset us either. The fact of the matter is, he has his plans. His plans will come to pass. And my word to you today is be encouraged. The hard labor that we have been doing with very few people, and with very little in the way of resources, and we have been giving and giving and giving out of the very little that we have we're about to begin, begin giving out of the overflow that is coming our way. We will have people in this congregation that we haven't seen before. It won't be just a few of us that feel like we're doing everything, trying to keep the ship right and keep the work going. It'll be lots of people who are doing the work. Neither will it be us just barely getting by financially. But God will be pouring into us as we are generous with him, he will pour into us. He'll pour into us and pour into us and pour into us, and we'll be able to give out of that overflow. Now, I'll tell you something else also, though, that there's a way that people come into a congregation, and the way that people come into a congregation is generally because they're invited by someone who is warm and friendly and demonstrates they really care about them, and they invite them in. This entire series of messages has been about the art of making disciples, and it is an art. It's not anything that's necessarily simple to do. I know some are more natural at it than others. And I want to make clear once again, though, that it's not simply getting people saved. I want you to hear that again. It's not simply getting people saved. I want people to be saved. I want everybody to be saved. But Jesus did not tell us, go and make people saved. He said, go and make disciples. That was the word of Yeshua. Go and make disciples. Not go and make believers. Go and make disciples. And the one is not necessarily the same as the other. Remember, Scripture tells us that the devils believe and they tremble. I want to do much more than what the devils do. I want to be a true disciple of Yeshua, walking after him, doing the things that he did in the way that he did them. That's what I want to do. And this is what God has called us to do. So we're, at, we're on the art of making disciples, part seven, but part two in that series about the Word. 
Last week I started with a passage from Joshua 1. I want to read just two verses from that to start this message today. This book of the Torah should not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. For then you will make your ways prosperous and then you will be successful. Have I not commanded you, Chazak, be strong. Do not be terrified or dismayed. For Adonai, your God, is with you wherever you go. Let's remember the parts that we've already studied on the art of making disciples. We started out with the summary of the entire series. And then the first part was, does anyone remember? Come on. Relationships. That's right. Without relationships, you're not going to make disciples. If you think you're just going to go someone, go to someone cold turkey and share with them the four spiritual laws or the five Jewish laws or whatever help you're using and you think that's making a disciple, no, it's not. It isn't. You have to create a relationship with people. Number two. We live and move and have our being in Him through the Holy Spirit. That's right. If you're not operating in the power of God's Ruach, God's Spirit, you're not going to be empowered for the work that you need to do. I mean, just looking at it from the standpoint of God's power, I will tell you, whenever anyone sees God show up in signs and wonders. It makes a difference real quick. I've been in meetings that were going nowhere, and then all of a sudden, someone was healed, the Holy Spirit shows up, and boom! The people were glued to what was happening. Why? Because they want to see the power of God. They need to. They need to. Number three. Pardon? Say it louder. Uh, yeah, family, mishpacha. Yeah. If you're going to create disciples, you create disciples by really living life together with them. It, it's, it's not just that you see each other from time to time. Listen, this is something that, that Philip and I were going uh, on about some time ago because he was reading a book from Dan Juster in which Dan Juster was talking about Tacoon Ministries um, desires. Tacoon Ministries really wants to see congregations, communities of people that are together, ministering together, working together, struggling together, celebrating together, rising up in the power of the Holy Spirit together. Not people who are parted from each other, but people who are truly with one another. 
You, you remember the early congregations of God, they were marked by five things. Five things. First of all, they all gave themselves to the teaching of the emissaries, to the teaching of their leaders. They gave themselves to that teaching and they followed it. Yes, they made sure that what their leaders were teaching them was actually out of Scripture, out of the Word of God, but they gave themselves to that teaching. Secondly, what else did they do? They met together very, very often, all the time. All the time they met together. They had fellowship. Fellowship was important. And it wasn't just fellowship with anybody out on the street. It was fellowship together within the community. And they invited others into the community. Thirdly, they broke bread together. Now, I know some people think that's fellowship. But no, no, no. That's not what breaking bread was for. Breaking bread was taking communion. It was remembering what it is that the Lord did for us on that execution stake upon which he bled and died. And they were doing this sometimes daily. Why daily? Why maybe even more than once a day? Because that gives us our purpose. Even as he gave himself for a world that is in desperate need of him. So we should be willing to give ourselves to in exactly the same manner. And if we're not willing to, are we really being his disciples? And the answer is no, we're not. The fourth thing, they prayed together. They prayed together. All the time. Gigi was asking this question just a few days ago on the Remnant Mishpachah page. And I, I looked at it and I thought, you know, she's really correct. Why is it that so few people from here are part of our corporate prayer meeting? Why? Well, there may be many reasons. But I've said it many times before. If you want to move powerfully in the ways of God individually, you must be a person of prayer individually. But if you want the community that you're part of, if you, for heaven's sake, if you look at yourselves as part of a community, this is one way you'll know that you are part of that community. You see, we prove what we really think by our actions, don't we? If you really look at yourself as part of the community called Remnant of Israel, and if you wish to see Remnant of Israel succeed in the mission that God has given us to reach the city of Wichita, and like spokes from a wheel to reach all of Kansas and all of the United States reaching out from this central point of the United States of America, then you're going to pray together. Together. Not individually only, but together. Yes, you should be spending your hour or hour and a half or two hours a day in prayer every morning. But in addition to that, you should be praying together as a community. Because I'll tell you, God does his work not, not primarily through individuals. He does his work primarily through family units. That's right. And we call ourselves a mishpachah. A family, a family that's closer than blood, 
A family that even when blood rejects you, you're embraced here. And if we're going to walk as such a family, then we need to be praying together. Otherwise, we're not going to have the power to do what God gave us to do. Finally, fifthly, and this was nothing that they had to do. People had free will to give or not to give. We find that out in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. But yet the people in those early communities, in many, many times, they held things in common. Why? Because there were many poor among them. And there needed to be a way to have that money distributed to those who were poor or to have the material things distributed food or whatever else so that everyone within the community was taken care of and provided for. You remember, those first congregations were oftentimes rejected. And as the years went by, the rejection became ever clearer until finally after the destruction of Rome by Titus in 70 AD, the rejection was almost complete. Not quite, but almost. Now how do you think that they managed to continue to work and to grow and to build under the terrible persecution they were under from the Jewish authorities and from the Roman authorities, it was because they were truly together as one body, one mishpacha, working, doing the work of the kingdom of God together as a body. And it made a difference. Within a very short period of time, as much as a third of the people of Israel were followers of Yeshua at one point. Did you know that? It wasn't just a few. It's nothing like it is today. Today, very, very few Israelis are believers in Yeshua. But back in those early days, as many as one-third of the people of Israel were followers of Yeshua. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And not only that, what happened in the Roman Empire? The congregations grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. You know what the worst thing was for those early congregations? When the emperor decided to declare that Christianity was the religion of the Roman Empire, that was the worst thing that could happen to them. Because all of a sudden, they didn't have to work. All of a sudden, people didn't come to the Lord because they loved Him, but because they had to. Otherwise, the coercive power of the state would be used against them to forcibly convert them. Oh my, what a mess. But until that time, you've got to understand the only reason it came to that point 
is because the power that was in the message, the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through the believers and the work that they did to take the good news of Yeshua to every man, woman, and child that God put in their path. Go with me to Luke 8, verses 1 through 21, please. And we'll just see how far we get on this today. Soon afterward, Yeshua began traveling throughout towns and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. This is in Luke 8, 1 through 21. The twelve also were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Miriam, the one called Magdalene, out of whom seven demons had gone, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's finance minister, Susanna and many others were supporting them out of their own resources. You even had people who were out of Caesar's own household who were supporting the believers, supporting those who were with Yeshua, supporting Yeshua's ministry. Even in this early day. And when a large crowd was gathering and those from various towns were traveling to him, he spoke by means of a parable. And this was the parable. The sower went out to spread his seed. As he sowed, some fell beside the road and was trampled, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on rock. When it came up, that seed withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up around it and with it and choked it. And other seed fell into the good soil, and when it came up, it produced fruit a hundredfold. While saying these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm calling out to you today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now his disciples were asking him what this parable meant. Then Yeshua said to them, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to the others it is given in parables in order that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are the ones who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. The word that fell on the rocky places are the ones who, when they hear, they accept the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a season and in a time of testing, they fall away. Now that which fell into the thorns are those who were hearing, but as they go along the way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they do not bear mature fruit. But the seed in the good soil are those with the praiseworthy and good heart who have heard the word and hold it fast and bear fruit with patient endurance. 
Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with some object or places it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that all those who enter may be able to see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor secret that shall not be known and come into open view. So pay attention how you listen, for whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he supposes he does have will be taken away from him. And then we have this curious little passage here that that I'm going to say something about because I think it fits very well here. Yeshua's mother and brothers came to him, but were not able to reach him through the crowd. Now it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But answering, he said to them, and I think spreading his arms and pointing to those who were all around him already. And he said, my mother and my brothers are these who are hearing the word and doing it. So he gives this parable about seed. And he tells us that the seed is the word of God. If you don't know the word of God, you are not going to be able to make disciples. Did you know that? It's just very simple. If you don't know the word of God, you're going to be hindered in making disciples. Because the seed that we have to plant is, in fact, the word of God. This is the seed that we have to plant. If we don't have seed in our hand, then we won't be able to sow, will we? If we don't have seed in our hand, we don't have the word. We're not going to be able to sow into human souls whereby the word may grow up and the people become disciples over time. It's just simple truth. The word of God is the seed. If you don't know the word of God, you have no seed. And therefore, you can't plant. You can only plant as you have seed. You can only have the seed grow as you sow it. But if you don't have the seed, you can't sow it, and so therefore you're planting nothing. That's just the simple truth. And this is what Yeshua was explaining to them. But you see, it goes even further than that. Because we're talking about four different kinds of ground here. We're talking about seed that falls on the road. It's hard, it's stony, it's rocky, There's nothing to hide it from the birds of the air. And the birds of the air swoop down and they take the seed and it's gone. No growth. No one learns. No one takes to heart what God has spoken because it didn't even have time to begin to grow up within them. Then the second type of soil, the rocky soil. The soil is shallow, the seed falls on it, a little bit of rain comes, it blossoms gladly, joyfully, putting up its leaves, putting out its flower, but the the soil is very shallow. And because it's shallow, as soon as the hot sun comes, it dries up the ground, everything becomes very hard and dry, and it dies. In short, the test of life come. And because that seed soil is so shallow, it gives up. 
The third soil, falling on thorny ground. Don't just look at it as thorns. How about just weeds? Nobody likes thorns. They're painful, right? But you know what? I'm looking at the garden that Annette and I have. And Annette works very hard in this garden. Um, I haven't been working hard enough to tell you the truth. There's a lot of weeds out there. You know what? Wherever we have lots of weeds, not much is growing. It's where the weeds have been cleared that you see a clear differentiation, even in the corn. The corn where the weeds have been cleared well is green and vibrant and lush and it's growing twice as fast as the weed as the corn where the weeds are at twice as fast and what are the weeds what are the thorns that are the cares of life the pursuit of riches the pursuit of comfort the pursuit of entertainments and then finally the good soil the seed that falls on the good soil what happens it comes up with the rain it puts down its root deep so that it can hold on to that soil even in a time of dryness it can survive because it's got a nice deep healthy root system and so that's the basic parable but then right after that we have this odd verse some have thought i don't think it's odd at all i think it fits perfectly because it tells us exactly what we're supposed to be doing if we wish to create disciples rather than simply making believers yeshua's mothers and mother and brothers came to him but were not able to reach him through the crowd now it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And he answered, my mother and my brothers are those who are hearing the word of God and doing it. You want to know the difference between the good soil and the poor soil? Between the soil that's deep and the soil that's shallow? Between the seed that falls on the road and the seed that's really going to grow up? Between the seed that while it may grow up, it'll fall away in time of testing as opposed to growing and thriving even with great persecution. It is in fact the family of God that is the difference. And that's exactly why that passage is there right at the end of that parable. Because the message is given to anyone who has ears to hear that if you want if you want your neighbor who you're reaching out to to grow in the Lord, then you need to help your neighbor to become part of a body, part of a family, part of the mishpachah where they can be protected and where they can grow. Billy Graham, Billy Graham had a wonderful ministry, but he even admitted that at their best, only about 5% of those who made confessions of faith and during his time of ministry ever stuck with it. Only about 5%, and it might have been less than that, folks. That's horrible. So you have 100 that are saved, and 95 fall away. Just cut them off. They're gone. So you might have five who stay with it. And I'll tell you why. One of the problems 
One of the problems is we are too eager to make believers and we're not willing to do the hard work that is required to make true disciples. Yeah, people need to become believers, but that's only the beginning. That's when the important work starts because it's only as people become disciples that they're going to stick with it that instead of there just being five out of a hundred, that there's 10 or 20 or 30 or 60 or a hundredfold. You see. And that happens because of the work of the body. Together. The work of the body. The work of the body as we minister the word of God, as we sow the seed that is the word of God and then water and fertilize, yes, a little crap needs to come into everybody's life to grow well. Come on, you're supposed to laugh a little bit. But that's the truth. We don't grow because things are easy all the time. We grow because we have to go through times of struggle. But what is the difference for that one who is going for the, through the struggle and has no one with them as opposed to the one who is going through the struggle and they've got a family of people who are standing with them? I see Gigi's hand in the back. It's interesting, uh, one of those young police officers, it was a young woman police officer who was at Gigi's home on that awful day when Matthew collapsed in the bathtub and died. She was asking me the question out in the front yard. Well, does Gloria have any other family around here? And my answer was, yes, we're her family. And she said, this young police officer said, you're her family? And then she, I, I guess the thoughts in her brain finally caught up. The gear was engaged. And then she said with certainty, ah, you're her family. Yeah, that's right. It was obviously a thought that she had not really pondered very much. And hearing that Gigi had family that sticks closer than a brother, that's closer than blood, made an impact on her, if only for a moment. So you see, when you plant the word, and you've got to do it, and you've got to understand that the seed that you're planting is this word. So you've got to have a certain familiarity with it. You've got to know it to a certain degree if you're going to be able to use it well. But it's not just that you're throwing seed willy-nilly on the ground it is that you're preparing the ground. 
And after you've prepared the ground, you throw the seed on that ground that has been prepared. There's nothing haphazard about it. There's nothing careless about it. It's planned. And you work it. Anyone who has been by Philip and Lisa's house, they don't have a lot of ground to plant in. But it's amazing how much Lisa manages to grow. And it's because she prepares every piece of ground that she's going to utilize for growing purposes very carefully. And she plants the seed very carefully, carefully and specifically in the places where she wants it. Now, admittedly, there's some interesting uh, seed that comes up in places uh, that I'm sure that she didn't intend to have there. But still, the crops that she's growing on that little bit of ground are beautiful. And it's because she has taken note of what Yeshua says in Luke chapter 8 when it comes to planting, sowing and planting. You prepare the ground, you make sure the ground is ready for the seed, and then you specifically put the type of seed that you want where you're going to put it at. You don't put it somewhere else. You make sure the soil is deep, you make sure it's good, you make sure it's moist, you make sure it's been fertilized properly, and then you care for it, getting the weeds out from around it, that there would be no distractions that would grow up and strangle it. That's why those two extra verses are in there, you see. Because Yeshua understood that if the seed is going to grow up, it's got to be on good soil. And that good soil is amongst the family of God where it can be protected. I hate it when in the midst of a very, very, very emotional time, some pastor has what he calls an altar call. And you have a dozen people who come up and the music is playing and it's beautiful and the emotions are running high and tears are flowing. And yes, I've come to salvation. And you know what? Sometimes that's real good. Sometimes even under those rather haphazard conditions, the seed takes but you know what I see more often than not? Exactly what Billy Graham saw. Where most fall away. Because the seed is either on the road, where the birds can easily take it, or it's on rocky soil where it's not deep enough and a little bit of testing comes and it dies. Or thirdly, among the weeds, the thorns, the cares of this life, the distractions away from the ways of God. But then the good soil are those who are in a family just like this, where the soil is going to be deep. Why is it deep? Because look how many people are around you. You're not by yourself. It gives depth right there. It gives moisture for the seed to grow. 
It gives fertilizer for the seed to grow. Yes, even your brothers and sisters that really get on your nerve, they will help you to grow also. And this is what Yeshua was speaking about, you see. So remember, the word is this. This is the word. And it's only by knowing the word and using the word properly, effectively, that you're going to create a disciple. Because indeed, for someone to become a disciple, there's got to be a moment in which knowledge is crystallized and the person understands that, yes, Yeshua is Lord. And at that point, they become a believer. But that's not the end of the road. That's just the beginning. The early congregations were strong because they were all together in one place. They had a strength that nobody, that nobody could stand against. The powers of the Jewish authorities couldn't stand against it. The powers of the Roman authorities couldn't stand against it. Neither could Satan stand against it. Nothing could stand against it because they were all together in one place. There was a unity. They loved each other. They ministered to each other. They encouraged one another. Remember what we read in, in the book of Hebrews last week? Don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the day, the great day of the Lord. But that means you need to be together in unity, in love, working together, playing together, eating together, crying together, struggling together, celebrating together. Giving together, praying together. In every way, living life in such a way that you reflect the glory of the King who gave his life that you might have life. And others, as others see, as others from outside see what's happening in such a family, you know what? They say, how can I be part of that? You see, that's how disciples are made. So that's where I'm going to close at today. And we'll take up where we left off from there next week. But you see, making a disciple is much more. Yes, thank you, Lucy. Making a disciple is much more than simply creating someone who says they're a believer. A lot more than that. That's just the beginning point. And it might not even be the beginning point if the person didn't really understand what they were doing, and I've seen that happen. Yes, people have come forward in an altar call when they really didn't have a clue what they were doing. Well, that's not even going to make a believer in that case. 
might make someone who wants to be a believer, but there's a difference between a believer and one who wants to be a believer even. But we don't even want that. We want disciples. That's what Yeshua called us to make. It's what we must make. And we do that in family. We do that together. We do that in prayer together. We do that in taking communion together. We do it in fellowshipping together. We do it in giving together. We do it in loving one another together. Amen? Amen.